He's been called the Pope of evangelical conservatism. Jonathan Fletcher also is a serial abuser who subjected dozens of young men to ice baths, naked beatings, and sex acts, according to a newly released report. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And joining me today is Lee Fernie. Lee is the first survivor of Jonathan Fletcher's horrific abuse to go public. And as you'll hear from Lee in the next hour, Fletcher groomed and abused young men who attended his prominent church in Wimbledon, England for 30 years. Fletcher also reportedly abused youth at evangelical camps designed to train boys and young men from elite schools to be future leaders. Some of those who attended these camps, run by what was called the Uern Trust, include the late theologian John Stott, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Nicky Gumbel, pioneer of the popular Alpha Course. But it isn't just Fletcher, whose abuse is now being confirmed. John Smythe, head of the Uern camps, also abused young men, dating back to the 1970s and 80s. Yet sadly, when Smythe's abuse was uncovered, it wasn't reported to police. Instead, the Uern Trust handled the matter in-house and then sent Smythe to Africa, where he continued his abuse. This story, which Fernie calls the mother of all abuse stories, is rocking the Church of England. It's also sending shockwaves through the Anglican community in the U.S. and around the world. And it has many parallels to the recently exposed Ravi Zacharias sex abuse scandal. In the next hour, we'll explore this tragic story in detail and discuss the culture that allowed both Fletcher's and Smythe's abuse to continue for so long. We'll also discuss solutions and next steps, so I think this is going to be an extremely important podcast. But before I dive into my discussion with Lee, I'd like to thank my sponsors, Judson University and Marcourt of Barrington. I'm so grateful to partner with my friends at Judson University. Judson is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. The school also offers more than 60 majors and great leadership opportunities. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Lee Fernie, the first survivor of Jonathan Fletcher's abuse who's willing to be named. Lee attended Fletcher's church in South London for five years, and for two years he lived in a house with Fletcher as an apprentice. Lee also was the first to make a formal complaint regarding Fletcher's coercive control some 20 years ago. And over the past several years, he's spoken with dozens of victims of both Jonathan Fletcher and John Smythe. And I've gotten to know Lee a bit over the past few months, and I've learned that he's a man who cares deeply about abuse survivors and also about the integrity of the church. So Lee, thank you so much for joining me and for having the courage to speak out about this horrific abuse in the church. Hi, Julie. Good to speak with you too. I should mention that you're joining me from Malawi, where you've pastored a church. You're now working to equip church leaders there. So despite everything that's happened, you've stayed in the church. You're in ministry, right? Yes, I'm involved in ministry in Malawi. Uh, I was pastoring a church there for about eight years. And then another guy has has taken on um, a sort of replanted uh, church, and we're trying to get behind him and have a local leader lead rather than uh, me calling the shots. So we're really pleased. 
and one of the local guys is uh, doing great things. Well, and that's a wonderful thing when you can pass on ministry to the nationals and they can take it and run with it and do much more mm-hmm. than we can who come in from the West. But uh, great to hear that and great to hear that you're in ministry. But we have been in conversation about what's happened with Jonathan Fletcher, and you've been anticipating this report. Obviously, it was many months in the making. And in the the UK, this is like major news. You have one of the most respected journalists in all of England who's reporting on this. And of course, that gives it a high profile. The Church of England obviously is high profile. But most of my listeners are in the U.S. And so I think I'd just like to start there. If you could explain why people in the U.S. and evangelicals in the U.S. should care about this scandal that's happened across the Atlantic. I mean, how does it impact us here, but also just evangelicalism in general? Yes, I think that's first of all is is the link is evangelicalism in the U.S. It's often associated with high profile figures. You might sort of think of a Tim Keller or whoever. And so we're looking at sort of equivalents in the U.K., high profile uh, figures who are known for their theological orthodoxy in quite a mixed denomination. So the denomination is not so much important, but we're talking about the known conservative evangelicals and the way it maps is very much like the very Ravi Zacharias scandal, uh, lots of uh, similar lines. So there's a lot of sort of joint learning that we can do together. And in the UK, unlike in the US, evangelicalism is more of a minority among Christians. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, we've been on the, the back foot for quite a while and it's tough going. I think that's part of the deal is that people are so busy and trying to do what the sergeant major says uh, in the army sort of sphere. And the last thing they want to do is is do some uh, friendly fire. And that's what people fear. But actually, we need to deal with our own problems. But it is tough when you have a movement that's a minority movement already, and then to have a scandal like this come out, which is not just with Jonathan Fletcher. And I mentioned this does go back with another very prominent uh, evangelical. In fact, you've called this when we talked months ago, the mother of all abuse stories. So I I think to really unpack this, we need to take a look at sort of the background of it, you know, what, what happened. Again, what makes this so huge is that it was part of a system preceding Fletcher's abuse and also concurrent with it was this abuse of this other large figure who, again, in the U.S., probably nobody's heard of, but his name is John Smythe, and these two abusers are in many ways intertwined. So let's start with John Smythe and his abuse, which goes back to, as I understand it, the 1970s and 1980s. Who is John Smythe, and what did he do? Right, so John Smythe was an eminent lawyer. Uh, He was the Queen's Counsel, so sort of top of the tree in terms of uh, law, And he was part of the same sort of social circle and Christian circle as Jonathan Fletcher from the early days, right back in the 70s and 80s, when his abusing began. And the place where all this centered around uh, was some summer camps that were run in order to win the next generation of Christian leaders, which in itself is a, a noble cause. However, everyone on that summer camp needed to have attended a private school Many were from Oxford and Cambridge, and they all went to these Ewan holidays. And the idea was to be strategic, was the word that they used, to try and select 
uh, ministry leaders for tomorrow. And of course, it was elitist and uh, pride was coming into the church and, and worldly methods were being used to develop uh, leaders. And then through their camp system, uh, this abuser, John Smythe, was grooming people in order to abuse them and to get his way with them. And so often uh, the grooming would happen on camp and then the abuse would happen off camp. So he'd lure people in and uh, be very friendly to them, invite them out to the house and meals and pool parties and that kind of thing, uh, together with his wife. And uh, that's when things would go wrong. So it was spiritual abuse. He'd use the Bible, and he would offer them a sort of uh, elitist form of Christianity. But if they wanted to be really first-class Christians, shall we say, then he offered them methods to do that. So what he would do would be to ask invasive questions. He'd often ask boys about masturbation, and they would own up to this uh, trusted Christian father figure and tell them what was going on. And then he'd suggest that he would beat them in order to, uh, to help them with their struggle against sin, as he'd say. And so basically the, the young people thought that they were getting some help with their spirituality. In fact, it was John Smythe getting what he wanted uh, as he uh, took these guys down to his garden shed and beat them and repeatedly so and the beatings were so bad that some of the guys had to wear adult sized diapers in order to mm. stop the bleeding mm. uh, the next day so it was really tragic stuff oh it's, it's so tragic and to think that it happened with a man who was a trusted christian leader again a big figure uh, in evangelicalism there in the uk and so Smythe and fletcher were both involved in these un camps concurrently but Smythe came before Fletcher, correct? Right. Well, Smythe was the leader of the camps uh, at the time. Uh, so he was actually the one who was supposed to be the sort of uh, under-shepherd uh, leading the, the camps, mm -hmm. uh, but was actually the, the chief abuser. Uh, Fletcher was there at the time. They, the, you know, the, he, they were concurrents, but Fletcher's profile wasn't quite as big. It was still very large within the, the camp circuit. And it was said by some of the Smythe victims that you could look out onto the, the sports fields and there would be Smythe with a circle of uh, boys around him and there would be Fletcher and they seemed to be in competition in mm. order to, to gather their coterie or their disciples around them. And uh, John Smythe uh, used to warn the boys against Fletcher that he would do something evil to them uh, even at that stage. And actually one of the most severe Smythe victims said that you know, this is a, a crazy, but this is, here's a guy who was beaten so many times and caused so much uh, anguish that he tried to take his own life on a couple of occasions. Uh, fortunately, he's still with us today and is a great friend and a, and a lovely man. Mm. And he says he he was thankful with Smythe. It was straightforward beatings, whereas Fletcher got inside people's heads and messed them up psychologically. So mm. here's someone who's had hundreds of beatings, you know, tried to commit suicide and sees actually the, the Fletcher stuff being even worse than Smythe. Mm. Wow, it, it's so heartbreaking. Um, what's especially heartbreaking, I think, is that this all could have been stopped decades ago. As I understand, there was in 1982, because of, I don't know if it was this gentleman or somebody else, but one of the victims of John Smythe attempted suicide. And as a result, there was a report done, an investigation within the UN Trust. And 
they found that the scale and severity of the practices were horrific. Eight victims received about 14,000 beatings, two of them having some 8,000 strokes over three years. This came out, again, the UN Trust, they knew about this in 1982. There was a school associated with UN, Winchester College, and they found out about it. And as I understand it, what they did is said, you just keep John Smythe away from us. And then he gets shipped off to Zimbabwe and then repeats it. How on earth does that happen? Right. And this is, I think, some of the relevance of our conversation to today's listeners, that if you don't deal with abuse properly in the past it's going to come back in the present and into the future and it Mm. must be dealt with properly you can't do half a job and many people feel very awkward they don't want to get involved with these things you know it's shameful it's messy but you must 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 deal with these things so that report that was produced at that time said that it was illegal the behavior and yet it wasn't reported to the police at the time Mm. and why wasn't it reported to the police at the time with a story given by the guy who took over the accounts from John Smythe, none other than Jonathan Fletcher's own brother, David, Mm. where he said it was because the victims didn't want it known and the parents didn't want it known and they'd suffered enough. Whereas privately he was telling other people that on these camps, uh, some of the parents parents were from the upper echelons of society. They were front page profile people and they couldn't afford to expose them to that shame. And so that's why the cover-up really took place. Mm. And so that's what happened. They offered Smythe a gentleman's agreements and uh, said to him if he didn't abuse uh, any more and promised not to and promised to see a psychiatrist, then they would forget about it. He actually was around in the country for a little while and and, uh, even studied at one of the uh, top theological colleges for a while. He was trying to get jobs uh, in churches there. And again, rather than expose him, at the time and reveal what was going on. Um, they wanted to keep a lid on things. And so it was a cat and mouse game with him still trying to continue in the UK. And then eventually they persuaded him to go to Africa. And just to stop and think about that, and I've lived in Africa for the last mm. 10 years, that they decided to get rid of their trash by exporting it to Africa and uh, telling him to be a good boy and hoping for the best. Mm. And uh, the best is not what happened uh, when he got to Africa by any means. Yeah, I mean, from what I've I've read, he set up the Zambezi Ministries, held summer camps for boys. Did did it? I mean, I'm thinking of the people who shipped him off there. They they really allowed him to have access to boys again. I, it's stunning to me. He was arrested in 1997 during an investigation of drowning of a 16 year old boy found naked in a pool at an Anglican prep school. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened. Said Smith said the drowning was an accident. And the homicide investigation was eventually dismissed. Then he moves to South Africa, runs this thing called Justice Alliance of South Africa. Again, continues the abuse. And, you know, I was born in Zimbabwe. My parents were missionaries there for 10 years. And the thought Mm -hmm. that that we would send, you know, the West would send someone as a missionary to help who is really abusing children is is just absolutely horrific, just awful. It really is horrific. In fact, at the start, they made him, uh, again, promise not to do any summer camps when he was abroad. And you've guessed it, within a couple of years that started. But once again, rather than reveal what he was doing at that time and blow the whistle, 
uh, they tried to manage the situation. And so uh, rather than stopping it, they would uh, check up and see how it was going. And so if any of the UN boys went out to Zimbabwe, one of the UN leaders would check up on them when they got back to make sure that they were okay. And this was their system of trying to keep a lid on the scandal, mm. but um, not protecting people on the ground. And uh, no care really at all for uh, local Zimbabwean people, as long as their UN visitors were okay. And then uh. Smythe continued to abuse there. There was enforced nudity on the camps. And so the boys were told that they um, couldn't wear underwear in bed. They had to leave toilet doors open if they were on the trampoline and they weren't allowed to wear any clothes. Uh I mean, it was pretty sick stuff. And then the beatings there, some of them were fairly public. So he'd uh, get a table tennis uh, bat and spank people with it uh, in front of others. Then he had private beatings with a, a larger stick as well. And, you know, we don't know what happened to this poor chap guide Nichiri who died but he was found dead in the swimming pool in the morning if you've ever led on a kids camp you know that you count people out and you count people in but he was found dead in the pool and there was bruises on him when they discovered the the naked body mm-hmm. so absolutely you know top of the scale tragic stuff eventually he slipped the nets and went down to South Africa and, and then started abusing once again there mm. When you say that they thought they could control him and manage him, I mean, it just reminds me of some of the investigations I've done where elders find out that their pastor has horrible character, but they think we can manage him. We can keep it under wraps. And I mean, if there's one lesson to be learned from this is when people are abusive and they're abusers, they should be removed and publicly exposed, but don't try to manage it because you can't. It wasn't until, as I understand, Smythe's abuse became public in 2017, again, when Channel 4 there in the UK did a, a major expose telling all about the abuse he had done. And then it's my understanding at that point, that's when the victims began talking about, well, it's not just Smythe, it's Fletcher too. Is that right? Pretty much. Actually, there was one guy who reported on Smythe in 2012 and uh, went and uh, made a safeguarding uh, report. And the person uh, he made the report to uh, sat on it for a while, and then eventually got up to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is this sort of Church of England uh, senior leader. And not much was done. Uh, We're told later on that a warning was given to South Africa where Smythe was at the time, but there was no answer to the email, and they didn't bother to make a phone call. Mm. So there was another five years of abuse from 2012 to 2017. And then one of the great journalists in the UK exposed him in 2017 with a TV documentary. The victim's representative, Andrew Greystone, has provided lots of support for the victims and helped really uncover all of the facts in this case. And between the two of them, were able to reveal Smythe as an abuser and to start to bring help and healing into the situation. And then when that broke on the news, um, there was a massive secular scandal, sex scandal in the UK, and everyone was shaken by it because it was a top celebrity uh, that was revealed to be an abuser. And it wasn't just celebrities, but also people like John Smythe, respected people in society, respected people in the church, made it clear 
that no institution should be sitting there proudly and smugly thinking it couldn't happen to us. Mm. It can happen in every single place. And that's what happened in 2017. People suddenly realized not only these things can happen to us, but this has happened to me, people would realize. And then they started to report on Fletcher. And we started to then get a stream of reports uh, saying that not only Smythe, but Jonathan Fletcher was an abuser as well. Hmm. And tell me, in the UK, in the, the conservative evangelical community, what was the impact of that revelation? Well, it's huge. And so I became a Christian uh, when I went off to uh, university and uh, just very happy uh, time coming from darkness uh, into light. And the term that was we used at the, the time was you wanted to be a keen Christian or a sound Christian. So you wanted to get your theology right. And a lot of it was theology in academic form rather than in practice. I know um, Steve McAlpine's spoken very well about this mm. and talked the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And those two things need to go together. The fact that you, you brought this up, the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy and how these two have to go together, because most all of my work deals with orthopraxy, the right practice. Mm -hmm. And what's right. so difficult, I think, for Christians is when we have these champions of orthodoxy, like a Ravi Zacharias, you know, or yeah. even a John MacArthur or a James McDonald. And we say, say, these guys, these are our champions. They're great. And because of that, we assume that their heart must be right, that their practice might be right. And what we're finding, I think this is probably the most shocking part of these revelations that have happened within the last five years, has been mm -hmm. that it hasn't been the Joel Osteens. It's not the uh, the right. Catholic Church that we like to vilify sometimes. It's not, you know, it's not all of them that we that we can say it's the doctrine. Exactly, and uh, you think that you're on the right team, and and you know you've got your champion, and you can take your eyes off Jesus and start following them instead. And and Fletcher was one who demanded great personal loyalty. And again, you've you've gone wrong at the first base. Our loyalty is to Jesus first of all, not to any Christian leader, not to any under shepherd. Well, let's turn to Jonathan Fletcher. And as I mentioned when I introduced you, you don't know about this from reading a report. You know about this firsthand. And I should mention, John Smythe passed away in 2018, so he's no longer with us. Jonathan Fletcher, on the other hand, 78 years old right now, but you you got to know him 20-some years ago. You were involved in the Wimbledon Church, and you got involved as an apprentice. You were living in the house with him, I'm guessing he's discipling you. That's not an unusual thing. I mean, it's somewhat unusual for someone prominent in the church to be, you know, a single guy at, at that stage of the game and, and living with with young men. But again, it could be a beautiful discipleship model had Fletcher been a different person. Would you describe the living and working arrangement that you had in the house with Fletcher? Right. So I was at the church for three years before that and didn't really know him very much. And um, so when I was then asked to become a ministry apprentice, uh, we did like a part time teaching course in central London for half the week. And the other half of the week was working for the church and the living arrangements where some people had a flat down the road and a couple of people had the sort of double honor, not just to work for the church, but to share a house with Fletcher. And because he was the sort of great preacher of his day, he was supposed to be the next uh, John Stott, if you like. Mm. Think, great, you know, I share a house with him. Your non-Christian family says to you, 
you know, isn't that a little bit odd? You know, sharing with a guy who's you know never married, getting on, and they they start raising their questions, and you say, no, no, it's it's all fine. He's a great guy, and everybody you know says that he's a, a great man. I was there, keen to learn, keen to serve, and uh, trying to do all the right things. And so the first sort of semester, if you like, that I was there, things were going really well, really well at the church, uh, really well on the course, getting good feedback. And uh, really well at the house seemed to be, you know, very much appreciated by uh, Fletcher, uh, but a little bit too much so. And mm. so he became, you know, trying to sort of develop this sort of father-son uh, relationship. Often he would spend time with people who had had difficult relationships with their own fathers and try to, to step into that gap mm. and would ask you lots of personal questions. And again, ask you questions such as uh, about masturbation and then uh, want to really try and get a hold of, of you spiritually speaking, he would say to help you uh, with that. But then, then became a very imbalanced power relationship. So with Fletcher, he used to go for sort of good-looking sporty guys is what they tended to say. So, you know, there's probably the, the slight positive out of all of these things. I, I get a compliment that uh, maybe I'm either good-looking or sporty. <laughs> and uh, sporty is probably the one that we're going to go for. So he'd take me to the tennis courts or the squash courts and play sports. And you wanted to speak to him as your mentor. I mean, I just wanted to, you know, sit down at the table or in, in the living room and chat things through. But no, he made you play sport, first of all, or made you run around and get sweaty. And then after you get sweaty, of course, you have a shower. I was used to playing sort of fairly good quality soccer. So team showers were something that I would do every weekend with a football team. And so didn't raise an eyelid when you, you know, go for a shower after a, a game of tennis. But he seemed particularly keen to get you into the sauna after that. And then he started talking about naked saunas. And so you might go from the shower to the sauna, but naked sauna, really, with an older guy who's your boss. Mm. So I was a no at that point. And he tried a couple of times to persuade me to, to have a professional massage. He said he couldn't cope with the stress of ministry unless he had a professional massage. And he had to recommend that to me very, very strongly. Well, here's somebody who's supposed to be looking after you, mentoring you spiritually, who says... In my view, very, very strongly, I think you should have a professional massage. And what would happen is people would say yes to that. Then he would say, do you know what? Let's save some money. And uh, why don't we massage each other? So pretty soon, uh, these guys were getting caught into this trap where he'd be having nude massages uh, with those that he's trying to, to mentor. And uh, if he didn't say yes, then... It was a whole different game. Mm. So when he tried with me, tried to invite me to, to have a massage, just from the culture I was from more than anything else, I just laughed in his face and said, you know, I wouldn't be interested in that at all and you know, phrased it fairly awkwardly. Uh, but I just remember the look on his face and he was just able to turn his face uh, to be completely intimidating. And so there was a real anger and intimidation on his face and this is the guy that you don't want to displease because one, you're told all sorts of great things about him being a good mentor. And then two, he's got all of this power over this circle of the church. If you want to leave this um, church with a job, then you need to please this guy. Mm -hmm. And not pleasing this guy is, is going to mean that you don't get a job, you don't get finance in the future, that people are going to think that something's gone wrong with you, spiritually speaking. And here he is looking at you with those eyes, mm -hmm. making you feel 
that you needed to change your mind. And so that's what he did. And he tried a couple of times and I said, uh, no chance, no way. And then, I mean, Wade Mullins really got the the dynamics on how this works. Mm. He talks about there being cubicles of charm and crucibles of condemnation. So you would move from this crucible of, the, of charm where Fletcher is saying you're doing great, the whole church is saying you're doing great, the court is saying you're doing great. Uh, all of a sudden you're isolated, you're humiliated, opportunities are taken away from you, you're not allowed to preach, and you're on the naughty step. Mm. And other people don't really know why, but because he says so, then they collude with that and, and, and back him up. And all of a sudden, you know, what was a good start uh, then became a very difficult last year and a half or so at being at the church. Mm. And so you you did get on that bad side. And, and I think it's so important for people to hear your story, because what a lot of people don't understand is how adult abuse happens. And you describe it so well, this whole grooming process. But it's interesting, Fletcher, when he was confronted, he said, well, it was all consensual. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm sure had you participated, like many did, under this situation, he would have said that's consensual. But it's mm. not consensual. I mean, we have this huge differential of power. I mean, it, just by very nature of the relationship, there's really not consent there. Absolutely not. No, there's a huge power differential, as you say, and he's this impossible figure to to say no to. And people were, were bullies into doing things that they shouldn't do and largely because of the, the levels of trust and that's what makes it spiritual abuse mm. uh, so here's a guy in, in a religious setting who's got people sharing with him domestically and he, he didn't abuse just domestic people mm. uh, just people that live with him but he's using the name of god and the word of god to tell them this is something that you want to be doing so he's putting a huge weight of pressure onto people to do what he wants to and then all of a sudden, they're getting physically abused. They're getting sexually abused. It was sexual as well for some people. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't do that, such as myself, who said no, and uh, I was 10 years older probably than the other apprentices, and that's probably the only difference, then you became psychologically abused. And, um, you know, again, there's a, a Ravi Zacharias a, a parallel there as well with the way that he used his power. Mm-hmm. Well, as I understand... You did file a formal complaint. Was that with the Church of England? So I filed a formal complaint with the staff team, and I did that on a number of occasions. Hmm. So that was three or four times. At Wimbledon. I went, at Wimbledon, I went and complained to the staff team there and uh, said that it had to stop. Hmm. And the response? You were told that he was a great man. It was a great honor to be at the church, and you needed to take the rough with the smooth in life. <laughs> And uh, you should be thrilled with being here. And so you really need to settle down. And you're being told by somebody who had you know, the class system in the UK is pronounced. You've been told with someone who's got more social power than you, who looks down on you, mm. that really you just need to fit in a little bit more. And you're, you're basically being immature as a Christian and fussy for making these complaints. So that's what happens first time around. Second time around uh, that you come, then there's a concession and you're told that actually there was a minister there the year before who, who had some problems and he had tried to confront Fletcher and it hadn't gone very well. So you probably shouldn't cause a fuss either. And then you come around third time around and you say, look, this is terrible. This is, you know, I'm getting my head kicked in here. It's 
absolutely terrible. It's not what's just happening in private, but you can see in staff meetings, uh, there's people that have left the church because of the way that they've seen these apprentices, these interns being treated. Why aren't you doing something to stop this? And again, similar sorts of answers. And then fourth time round, that's when alarm bells started ringing a little bit more. So I started hearing some people saying that individuals were receiving what was termed as back rubs. When I was picturing somebody having a you know shoulder massage with their shirt on here, where they're actually pointing towards, which I didn't know at the time, was a naked massage with the the head of the church. And I saw one guy fully clothed being loaded, lowered into a, a cold bath and couldn't work out what was going on at the time. I think it was betrayal, blindness for myself, didn't realize what was happening. Mm. And um, this guy gets loaded into the cold bath. I ask what's happening. I get chased away. There's a lot of giggling going on uh, by um, Fletcher and you're normalizing it in your mind. Mm. Fletcher was a great one at normalizing things. So you try and normalize touch. So he wants to sort of play fight or give you one of those sort of Chinese burns on your arm where you sort of twist the skin and there would be lots of uh, banter to sort of soften you up. Mm. And really he was just trying to move you through the steps in order to get his hands on you. And that's what happened to people. And so I complained. I said, look, you know, I've heard these rumors of back rubs. I've seen someone getting lowered into a bath. There's clear favoritism going on here. Unless you dance to his tune, then you're pushed off a cliff and you're condemned, and you as leaders are standing around watching this, something needs to be done. So I was assured at that point that there would, that would be investigated, and it did sound very bad, but they were sure that there was a reasonable explanation for it. And of course, there wasn't a reasonable explanation. Hmm. Again, 20 years ago, how much pain and suffering could have been avoided had that been taken seriously? But it wasn't taken seriously, obviously. It was buried, and it wasn't just by your church. You were telling me that Smythe, for example, when it came out, when he was shipped off to Africa, there was a very prominent family who was a part of Nikki Gumbel's church that was a part of that, right? Right. So uh, Coleman's Mustard Coleman's is the sort of most famous brand of mustard in the UK, and the the wife was one of the associate ministers at the church the husband in the various sort of uh, roles, but uh, lots of money. And they supported him to go to Africa. And even when it became apparent that he was abusing in Africa. Hmm. It was just, I mean, just pervasive and widespread. The report talks about this, sort of the overlapping networks and how they kind of work together. And we see that, I mean, I've referred to it as the evangelical industrial complex. We have it here in the US. We have a form of it there, obviously, in the UK as well. And so, again, this stays buried for decades. The abuse continues by both Fletcher and Smythe. Again, in 2017, it breaks. And Fletcher's victims begin speaking, and the Church of England removes Fletcher from preaching. My understanding, though, he still did some ministry after that, correct? For years. For years. (laughs) And so his permission to officiate has been removed. The Church of England themselves don't notify people properly. So people don't know what's happened. They've come to a private arrangement with him. Have we learned nothing? Mm. Um, So he's allowed to tell the story from his point of view in terms of uh, what's happened. 
and even when there were more serious revelations, he was still allowed to do things. Hmm. So, you know, he had this cohort of uh, very powerful people around him. Uh, you say the in- industrial complex is like the Christian mafia. Hmm. You know, the, there's this sort of strong culture of you're one of us, it's very tribal, and we look after our own. Criticism is unsustainable. You can't bring an accusation against people without being pushed off a cliff uh, yourself. Scandals are minimized. There's an iron fist but with a velvet glove around it. So people assume, because of all of this social charm and manners, that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. But behind the scenes, what you've got is a constituency within a domination that's full of fear. And anybody who breaks, breaks ranks, then they get a smear. There's a story that goes out about them, and and they're shut up. Hmm. The tactics used are just so stinking common. Right. What led to the church finally ordering this investigation in 2019, this independent investigation by this group, 31-8? The only reason they kicked this off Hmm. is because somebody leaked this to the newspapers, Daily Telegraph. Uh, They broke the story that um, Jonathan Fletcher had had his permission to officiate removed because of um, concerns. Mm. And so that's what happened, uh, first of all. At that time, people didn't want to have uh, an investigation in the leadership. They were against an, an investigation. And the Charities Commission in the UK put pressure on the church in order to have uh, an independent investigation. And some ministers of healthy churches, again, put pressure on to do that. The church themselves, at Emmanuel Wimbledon, they, they realized that things were going in the wrong direction. And uh, just before things broke in the paper, some of his old uh, apprentices received a letter in very cagey terms that you may have had a negative experience or that kind of thing. And so I can remember reading that and saying to my wife, something big is, is happening here. And they're not saying this to, to, to help me out. They're saying this to, to cover themselves when mm. this story breaks. Mm. And, and lo and behold, you know, that was because they knew it was about to break and uh, it broke in the papers. They formed a response. There's a little uh, secretive group that was tasked uh, with dealing with it. No victim involvement, no minutes, no identities, who, who, who's involved in the group. And then finally, the church are shamed, really, into uh, conducting an investigation. And that kicked off uh, then at the end of 2019 and has uh, just delivered on the 23rd of March. Again, different yet so many similarities. It seems like the only thing with so many of these scandals that gets the organization or the church to deal with it is public exposure. Without the public exposure, it just doesn't happen. Just praise the Lord for his wonderful design there, that in his grace, he's given us secular people, magistrates and journalists, Mm. and if Israel won't deal with their problems, then he sends us off to Babylon mm. to teach us humility. And it's the pagans that are going to teach you humility. Indeed, that's what's happened. And so the, the people who have been sorting this out it has been the, the papers. They're the ones who have been able to tell the story and work us through this and help us to know what's happened. There's been precious little from the church. They've just locked down until the report came out. The my victims... They've been waiting 40 years, Mm. you know, for something. 
it's interesting as you're describing that in in the UK it was the secular media that brought these things to light. It's been primarily like with the Ravi situation that's been Christian mm-hmm. media bringing it to light and we get so much flack for doing so because people are like what about the exposure? How does this reflect on the church? And I think this shows if we don't deal with this in our own community, and if the church doesn't deal with it, if the organization doesn't deal with it, if then the Christian media doesn't deal with it, eventually it's going to get to the secular media, and that's even worse. I I am so glad that finally this report has come out, as you say, took way too long for the victims who have been waiting decades already. But again, what this showed, 30 confirmed victims, again, confirming these reports of naked massages, saunas, forfeits, including smacking with a gym shoe. What's a forfeit? Is that, that sounds like a British word. That's like a beating. Right. So if you behave well, you Mm -hmm. get a treat, um, a piece of chocolate or something. But if you behave badly, you do a forfeit and you get a beating instead. Okay. And so the sickness of Fletcher's mind that the the forfeit was the beating, the reward was that you got to massage him in the nude. Mm. I mean, how how horrific is that for the for the victims? Absolutely horrific. And then there's something that was new in that report that hadn't been reported before, and that's that there was a serious incident of uh, sexual abuse where a participant reported that Jonathan Fletcher told him to perform a sex act in front of them when he didn't. Then Jonathan Fletcher performed this sex act instead. The report concluded this behavior demonstrates a gross abuse of power and in the opinion of the reviewers is far beyond anything which can be deemed acceptable or appropriate from a minister in a position of power, trust, and responsibility. The report's over 140 pages. It's extensive. What does this mean to you to have a report validate your experience? I think just as you said those words, it was almost as if we could just stop the interview and the recording and take some time to to lament mm. what's happened here. And I think that's something that we, you know, don't take time to do often enough. You, you get it in the Psalms again and again, and uh, and and really seeing that put into writing to know that that's, these things did happen, and that's you know we're right to mourn these things. It's very grievous what's happened uh, to the individuals involved and that this should happen in our circles. Secondly, um, there is that level of, of vindications. Uh, yes, you know, people weren't making up stories. Fletcher's a prolific abuser and the bravery of people coming forward. So people went to report their abuse to the review and they needed reassurance after reassurance that this would not get back to other people. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind at this point, Fletcher had been retired for seven or eight years, he wasn't a figure in the constituents anymore. There was still that culture of fear that you can't bring an accusation against the leader. Mm. Yeah? And many people don't feel that they could report. First of all, they were invited to report their abuse. Where? To the church itself. There was no safeguarding charity to report it to. Mm. So you had to go to the church itself and report the abuse to the church itself, in my case, to one of the enablers of his abuse. So that's what you were invited to do. Here's a letter. Here's a, literally, there's a, there's a box in the letter that tells you where to report to. You can report to the minister who enabled his abuse or to the safeguarding officer there. And if you want to think out of the box, 
You could go to the diocesan safeguarding officer who you've been told for 20 years is a no good liberal. And, you know, that would basically be apostasy to, to, to go there to the diocese. So mm. those are the options given to, to people to report. So many didn't report. Many had no levels of trust and stayed back. Some brave people did do that and courageously spoke out. And we've been able to now establish that all of these things that were said happened, but actually there's far, far many more victims than we've got recorded. We've got 27 victims recorded in that report. Mm. Well, that's the tip of the iceberg for mm. Fletcher's abuse. Well, and I think it's stunning that we have nearly 30 confirmed victims. As you said, that's the tip of the iceberg probably. And yet you're the only one who felt brave enough, and, and not to say that the others aren't brave, but I mean, I, what I'm saying is the, as you describe, there is no safety, even now, to feel like mm -hmm. I can come forward and I can say that. And I wonder how much, I mean, as you described in the UK, there's there's sort of a class system, but you also have a church that's very hierarchical and you know, I found if if you happen to be the person who's vulnerable, the person that doesn't have any letters after their name, the person who, you know, God forbid, is female also, in this case, it was mostly males, but, you know, you just know going into that room, the person with the doctorate and with all the education is going to be believed and you're the troublemaker, right? Right. So you leave, a, so I left a high paid uh, job in, in IT and, and business and went down to a salary of £4,000. Mm -hmm. And so I've got no financial, you know, chance. Um, I've got no social status in their circles. I didn't go to a private school, didn't go to the right um, university, didn't go to the summer camps. You can't bring an accusation against people. Mm. Well, and the report does validate that there was a cover-up. It says Fletcher's bullying, spiritual abuse, naked massages, and saunas were known about before his permission to officiate was revoked in 2017, yet little or no action was taken to address this by role holders and leaders at Emanuel Church Wimbledon at the time, and there were opportunities for action to have taken place sooner. That's probably like a major, major understatement. As we look at this now as a church, we've got this huge dumpster fire. We have dozens of victims. How do we begin to heal? And I know you were asked, because I, as I understand, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, did reach out to you. So before the report came out, he wrote me a personal letter, and uh, we'd been in some online group uh, together discussing these issues, and then he wrote a personal letter to me inviting me to have a conversation with him. For me, this was wholly inappropriate because uh, when the Smythe crisis broke in 2017, he had been involved in that crisis from about 2013 onwards. So you know, he's been involved for the last seven or eight years and he had promised the Smythe victims a meeting to, to talk through what had happened. And these are the people who have been on the same camps as him that he knows as brothers and then won't follow through with that, won't meet them as being advised to avoid them. So when he offered me a meeting, and I was asked on the TV news about this, I was asked, you know, did I reply to him? And the answer was no, I didn't. And I didn't think it was appropriate for me to be off meeting with him when he'd made these brilliant guys who suffered so much, just refused all of their reminders to him to say, you, you've asked to meet with us. 
mm. and you haven't done it. And so that went out on national television. Guess what happens the next day? There's an offer from the Archbishop of Canterbury. Let's set up a meeting and he'll meet with the guys, which in many ways is grace, uh, but in many ways is just really sad that it takes that, again, secular shame mm. in order to, to expose things. So again, you've got the, this example, it's the TV journalists. We've had the, the, the newspaper journalists. You talked about the, um, the Christian media in the US with Ravi Zacharias. Of course, we must mention Steve Boffman in, in, in that, the mm-hmm. um, atheist banjo player. It's uh, often the unlikely sources that God uses in order to bring his, his justice and to bring his salvation. Yeah. And, and I misspoke when I said that it was just the Christian media. It wasn't. He was the very first. The Christian media wouldn't have touched it. I wouldn't have even known about the story had it not been right. for Steve Boffman. And he's, he has done remarkable work, and I, I've thanked him repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did misspeak when I said that, and I appreciate you bringing that out. But this is one of the frustrations for me. The Ravi Zacharias, the investigation that was done, brought things to light. But the one thing that hasn't been investigated is who was complicit within that organization and what did they do? And they need to be investigated. The cover-up itself needs to be investigated because how many people are complicit? Don't there need to be resignations from people who were complicit? Absolutely right. So let's just um, bring things together. So with Ravi Zacharias, you've got there, again, a father figure mm-hmm. who's uh, boasting of uh, Oxford and Cambridge credentials, who's involves massage and uh, normalizing the sort of uh, touching experience with a spiritual veneer and then financial control of his victims. Very, very Fletcher-like. Mm-hmm. And then he gets exposed and we realize there's been great collusion in order to, you know, there's always collusion in order for an abuser to uh, abuse. And we've got a report now that was produced a couple of days ago that says that there's been collusion. Um, My word's not theirs, but it isn't just one bad apple, that apples grow on trees. And so therefore you need to have root and branch reform to work out what's wrong with the structures and what's wrong with the people in those structures, who knew what and when. And so the report was very strong on this. There was an independent advisory group that was um, brought in in order to to strengthen the arm of the report, really, to make sure that it was truly had credibility. Mm-hmm. And the independent advisory group underlines certain things in the report and said that there's a culture of fear and there needs to be resignations in order that we have healthy churches in the future. Well, Emmanuel Wimbledon has already come out and said that the minister there is going to be staying in post and mm. everybody else in that particular you know, circle of evangelicalism is forwarding their excuses to say they didn't know very much, really. And so there's this pretense of we're, we're all very, very sorry, but no one will take any personal responsibility. And so when everybody is sorry and the apology is general, nobody's really sorry at all. And so, for example, for me, um, I've got people saying to journalists, they're very, very sorry the way that they treated me, really remorseful. They've got great regrets, but they haven't told me that. And so if you were really repentant, you'd go to your brother, wouldn't you, or your sister, and you'd say to them, look, I've sinned against you, brother or sister. And there's been ample time to do that. And instead, it's been the same people that have been coming to me, not to say sorry to me, but to say to me, 
um, could you get people to stop making such a fuss? Could you <laughs> get people to take tweets down off social media because you know these people? Mm. And then you're faced with somebody who hasn't been in touch with you for 20 years. The last time that you met them, they actually turned their back on you and tried to avoid you. But now they're picking up the phone not to apologize, but to ask you to manage their social media, whilst at the same time decrying social media to other people in their circles and say, don't listen to any of that stuff. Well, of course, this is the last frontier for victims. Where else can they talk about these things? Secular journalists, social media, and we don't have it in the UK, but we, you know, with you in the US, you've got there a Christian investigative journalist that will take these things seriously. Hmm. I saw the current vicar of the Wimbledon Church interviewed, and I think the reporter caught him a little off guard when she said, did you aid and abet, you know, essentially, or did, were you complicit? Did you? And he said, well, that's, that's really strong. And so then she rephrased and said, well, did you inadvertently do that? And then he, right. he, kind of, he kind of owned that. But it's like, come on, this wasn't inadvertent. It, it, was, it was with knowledge. That's right. So it would be much better to say, yeah, do you know what? Um, I got that terribly, terribly wrong. And this is what I knew. And this is what I did. And I've gone to all the people and made that right. And that's not the case. Instead, he's trying to minimize what he knew and uh, not be upfront about it, mm. not really show any care for victims, try to resist the review for as long as possible. And then the review even criticized him specifically for giving an abusive sermon that defended himself. Very, very disturbing sermon that uh, would merit some analysis. And I think you're in the position that I think so many people are in the position of as well. And that is, okay, you've spoken out about the abuse you suffered, or you were not a, a survivor, but you were part of the church. You've been disillusioned. You've been just really discouraged by what you've seen. Now we have the church making apologies too little, too late. Nobody really saying, you know what, what I did was awful and I need to resign and somebody else needs to be in this post. So you have sort of a, a half repentant, which really isn't repentant church, you know, not really dealing with this. And you have scores of victims who are, are trying to put together how a church of the God that they love and profess, let them down so badly. Mm -hmm. yeah. How do you deal with that? I think um, tenacity is needed. Um, so there needs to be, in some ways, uh, a determination and a strength, but also there needs to be a Christ-like gentleness as well. And so, you know, I'm not out to get anyone and, uh, and the people that I've worked with, you know, like yourself, um, you're not doing hit pieces, are you? You're doing the work that you do in order to honor Christ and to make sure that people are restored. And so I want to expose what's happened so that the sin is dealt with, so that there can be help and hope and healing for victims, but also for those who have enabled or those who have abused, so they're brought to repentance as well, and they're restored. But if there isn't repentance, if there isn't appropriate resignations, then there won't be restoration. And Human sinful instinct kicks in. We want to defend ourselves. We think it's better to go the way of the world and to minimize and to try and uh, lock down on things rather than be forthright and say, actually, you don't even know the half of it. This is what I've done wrong as well. And so that would be the way to go is to be really, really forthcoming 
but instead we've got the opposite. We've got a, a lockdown situation. And so there you have it. You've got a church who's paying for a report to be done that's not going to be a report that's going to name names, while at the same time the people in the church are being told that if anyone's done something wrong, we're going to know about it. So again, there's duplicity even in the report process. Mm -hmm. And that's so typical. The organization that pays for the report also sanitizes the report the way they want or limits the scope of the investigation in the way that they want. And I think the bottom line that breaks my heart is that as a result, we have an awful lot of Christians who have no church home. Yeah. People get disillusioned, they, they, they drift away. And uh, again, that's why we need to deal with these things. And so one of the analogies that, that I use is that plumbing isn't very glamorous, but you must deal with the plumbing for the house because as much as you want to be having nice dinner parties and having friends over, if you don't deal with the plumbing, you're going to be knee deep in a lot of mess mm -hmm. and uh, you're not going to be having anybody uh, over for, for dinner at all. And I think that's been the case with these abuse scandals is that the plumbing has been neglected. These things haven't been dealt with and therefore we don't have a safe house to invite people in and they turn away instead. And we should know this from the scriptures that not only do we feed the sheep, but also we need to defend against the wolf because if we don't defend against the wolf, we're not going to have any sheep left. Uh, or again, you can use the uh, analogy elsewhere that we're supposed to not just teach and train, but we're supposed to correct and rebuke. And if we don't correct and rebuke, then everything is going to go wrong with our teaching and training. So because we want to be successful, because we want to do the, the nice bits to have lots of sheep in, we want to do lots of teaching and training, be seen as being a successful church, and we think that's good. Lots of people around for dinner. We neglect the other things because we've not really listened to the scriptures. We've not really listened to the Lord Jesus, that we have to do the hard jobs of ministry that don't make people like us, but actually is, is the medicine that people need. Mm. Well, Lee, thank you so much. I mean, your heart, your pastoral heart comes through. I'm just heartened that there's men like you really urging the Church of England. And I think as many will listen to this podcast, the church here in the United States to deal with, as you call it, the plumbing, deal with the sin because we can't bury sin. And the gospel is about confessing sin, repenting of it and receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and so I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful that you came forward. Just incredible bravery to do that. So thank you. God bless you, Julie. Thankful for the work that you're doing as well. And thank you for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. If you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Also, please subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, we always appreciate it if you help us spread the word by leaving a review or posting uh, this podcast on social media. We really appreciate that. Again, thank you so much for joining me, and God bless. God bless.